Thanks very much, Simon. Um, to our visitors, apologies. <laughs> what a day you chose to come. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I've entitled this talk um, a godly kind of love, as opposed to a groovy kind of love. Um, and I've given all of you the two passages that I'm going to focus on. I'm a weaver. I did um, I studied textile design in Manchester uh, in my youth, and this is a double cloth. I don't suppose many people know what a double cloth is, but this is a double cloth. So it looks very different either side. A double cloth is two pieces of cloth that are woven separately. So there's a warp and a weft on the top, and a warp and a weft on the bottom, and they intersperse with each other to produce a pattern like this. You've probably got pieces of fabric like this at home, and you don't realise that they're a double cloth. But that is what I'm going to attempt to do with this passage: to intersperse in between the two um, warp and weft, the two passages to help to explain them. And I've given you these sheets so that you don't have to keep going backwards and forwards in the Bible for a little bit, uh, to make it a little bit easier. But I'm also going to refer quite a bit to John chapter 13, so that might be one that you want to put your thumb in as well. Okay. So I thought it would be good to put into context when these letters were written in the 1st century AD. Here in Britain, we were running around bashing each other up and being fairly uncivilised, but there, Paul was writing amazing things like this that are so relevant to us today. Incredible. It's just astonishing. And um, it really struck me when I was looking at them how hard he must have worked writing and rewriting and thinking really deeply about what he wanted these two churches to hear. Uh, it reminded me, I don't know if any of you have ever had a letter from our dear brother Ian. They are the most beautiful things. They are works of art. The way that he puts so much thought into the letters that he writes. And, you know, even more so for, for Paul. So, the two letters to the Corinthians were written about 53 to 54 AD to a church that Paul had established with Priscilla and Aquila. Um, and they were written some, they were, yeah, the church was established some time before that, but it was written to a church in trouble. They were having all sorts of unrest, ungodly behaviour and division, and the church, this little infant church, was threatened, and Paul desperately wanted to restore balance and community um, for those believers there. Whereas Romans was written to a church that Paul hadn't established. Um, I think it was written in about... These, these I've just researched, so if they're wrong dates, I'm sure you two will be able to tell me, but that's, that's what I've worked at. Written um, at about in AD 57, and it was written to Jew, non-Jewish believers who had founded a church in Rome. And interestingly, again from what I researched, I found that the suggestion was these people were potentially Romans who'd been visiting Jerusalem when Peter got up and, um, at Pentecost and spoke um, the Gospel and told everybody. And then when they were speaking in tongues, it gives a list of countries where they heard their own dialect being spoken. 
when the people were speaking in tongues, and Romans was one of them there. And the suggestion was that perhaps they were there, went home, and decided to start a church, which is really interesting, isn't it? I hadn't heard that before. So Paul was introducing himself to them. He hadn't set the church up, and he didn't know the people he was writing to. And in that letter, he was explaining the gospel that he believed. He was encouraging them with examples of how to practice their faith practically. And he was telling them whom he hoped to visit them, which he did, as we know, at the end. And it seems to me, when I was looking at the two passages, in fact, can you give me one more? Um, that, uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you. That um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul was describing what love is, and then in Romans, he was re- explaining what love does, the doing of it. Okay, so we're going to start off with the first verse, and I will try not to be too long. So, in verse 9 of Romans 12, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Agape, it's a Greek word for love. That's what Rob is referring to here when he talks about this sincere, genuine love. It's a selfless, servant-hearted love. It's a love that chooses to love. It's not obliged to love. And it's a love that has very high standards, the highest really. This love causes us to hate what is evil and rejoice in the truth. In the other passage, in Corinthians verse 6, you see, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. That's what God does. He delights in the truth. Jesus called himself the truth at one stage. He cannot bear to be near evil. He lives and breathes and inhabits what is good and true and perfect. And Jesus displayed this love beautifully when in John 8 he met a woman who'd been dragged before him by the Pharisees because she'd been caught in adultery. I do wonder what the man who was caught in adultery, what happened to him? We don't find out. Jesus challenged the mob who dragged her in front of him. They wanted to stone her for her sin. And very quickly, once Jesus had asked all of them, are you without sin? They dropped their stones and they slunk away, knowing in their hearts that they were not. Jesus, though, wasn't just content to save her from certain death of being stoned. He wanted to release her from a life of sin that he knew would lead to eternal death. He'd been drawing in the sand with a stick. And I often wonder what he was drawing. He looked up and he said to her, where have they gone? Do none of them condemn you? And she said, none, Lord. But then Jesus said, neither do I. But, and it's a big but, go now and leave your life of sin. He loves us much too much to just leave us where we are. He knows what's best for us. He created us. Jesus puts his finger on the area that needs cleansing and purifying. And for each of us, that will mean something different. I know the areas in my life that I struggle with and they won't be the same as yours. 
These are areas where Satan loves to poke and prod and call me, cause me to stumble and fall often. The Bible tells us that everyone, all of us, have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But because God loves us so much, all of us can be forgiven. If we confess our sin and ask God to be at the centre of our lives, all this can happen because of what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Something I found really helpful, speaking practically, in my Christian life is having a trusted Christian friend who I can talk to when I fall. I've made myself accountable to her. She will, from time to time, ask me how I'm doing in areas she knows I struggle with, and we pray about it, and it really, really helps. It's hard to do. It takes guts to confess these things but it really makes a difference. And about clinging to good, this is what Paul says in another letter that he he writes to the church at Philippi. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It matters what we think. It matters what we think about. Cling to what is good. Okay, now going to verse 10 of Romans. Be devoted to one another in love. Another translation puts it like this. Love each other with genuine affection. Take delight in honouring each other. And the Greek word that Phil, uh, Paul uses here for love is philistorgus. Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> I'm looking at the people that might know these things. <laughs> I'll say it properly. Uh, anyway, it means loving affection between family. And Philadelphia, which speaks of love for Christian brothers and sisters. In Corinthians, verse 5, over on the other side, remember the double cross. It backs this up. Love does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love can mean lots of different things to different people. In our group, Paul, we were talking about how the word love has been devalued, possibly more in this generation than any others, and how... Um, Actually, Reverend Michael said that he's particularly aware of young people um, sort of flippantly using the the word love you, love you, you know, to sign off uh, text messages or telephone calls when actually they don't really love them and it's quite likely in the next call they'll be gossiping or badmouthing them. That's not quite it. And I remember seeing, this is such a funny thing, a clip of Ringo Starr. He, he was on um, YouTube or something and he, um, he was saying how he was being very stressed by all his fans writing to him, telling him how wonderful he was. You'd think he'd be quite happy about it, but he wasn't. Um, and he was saying, I can't cope with it, it's too much, it's much too much. And at the end, he signed off saying, I'm warning you in peace and love, I have too much to do. <laughs> 
I don't think that's genuine love, do you? Um, However, this isn't confined to pop stores. I can remember being told by a church leader in a sermon, I really love you all, but I can't be near you and express that individually. There are too many of you. That is not how Jesus operates. Jesus shows us how this love that puts other first works out in practice. It's an intimate, personal love. At the Last Supper in John 13, even though he knew what Judas was about to do, even though he knew that his disciples were all going to abandon him very shortly, still, don't attempt to do this. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured a bowl of water. He knelt down and he washed their feet. And when I think about it, it's astounding that the creator of the universe, the radiance of God's glory, the darling of heaven, I love that phrase, knelt down on a dusty floor and washed sweaty, smelly, smelly, sweaty feet. And he did it to show those he loved so much that he was going to die on the cross and then he was going to completely wash them from their sin. So what should our response be to such incredible humility? Are we prepared to wash each other's feet? In Haiti, Rob and I were there last time just before Easter and there was a service in which the whole church washed each other's feet. It took hours. And the water at the end was not very nice. It was not good being at the end of the queue. um, Our lovely Brenda used to delight in washing all those children's feet. She loved it. I wonder if we, if our response is like that. This should be our response to that Philadelphia love. In John 13, Jesus says a little later on, love one another as I have loved you. He said it earlier on. Then everyone will know that you are my disciples. It's not a you should or it would be nice if you did. It's a command. You must love one another. And if we don't do it as Christians, it really calls into question what we believe in. And the way that we represent Jesus to the world is potentially trashed. So how do we do it? It's hard. And I'm going to say that a lot through this talk. It's hard. It really is hard. When everything's going well and, you know, you're with people you like and it's easy to love, that's okay. But sometimes it's very difficult. People rub you up the wrong way. People who don't like you. People who criticise you. These are not easy people to love. In families, when... The people that we're with are supposed to be the closest to you. Arguments and disagreements and fallouts can happen a lot. I know they have in my family. But what we're supposed to do if we're following Jesus is to sort out these arguments quickly, humbly, lovingly, not gossiping, not grumbling, not keeping record of wrongs. The whole idea, and this is something that I've said in the past and I'm really challenged by it now, I love you but I don't like you, doesn't work Jesus. He calls us to a much more costly love than that. In person-centred counselling, that's quite a mouthful, 
It's um, one of the ways that a trained counsellor uses to help people who are experiencing difficulties in their mental health. This term means that you treat each client with unconditional positive regard. It's an attitude of complete acceptance and love, regardless of what you think about the person. And of course, we can't do it perfectly. But God can. So we need his help. The Holy Spirit helps us to grow the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. And as those fruits grow and develop, so we are able to love more and more those that we bump up against in our lives. I often pray that prayer, please fill me with the Holy Spirit so that when I bump up against somebody, it's the Spirit that falls out on them, not me. In verse 11, never be lacking zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Zeal means intense emotion, enthusiasm, ardour. And it can be hard keeping that fire burning in our faith being passionate about our relationship with God. You were talking about that just before, Simon. In fact, everything that went before really negated the need for me to come up here, but there we go. I'm I'm repeating a lot of what people have said. Jesus was zealous, and the love that drove him to that zeal was the love, I'm suggesting anyway, that um, he experienced within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit perfectly loving, perfectly equal, beautiful community, fellowshipping constantly from infinity to infinity. God didn't need to make us. He was complete and total and perfect in himself in the Trinity. But he chose to make us out of his love. So when Jesus saw his father's house, the temple, being used for the buying and selling of animals and changing money. He was furious. That wasn't what it was supposed to be for. The temple was where God had promised to meet his people. The Holy of Holies was such a special place where the um, chief priest went once a year and met with God and um, gave sacrifice for the people's sin. It was desecrated by what he saw. Where it was where they would come, people would come and hear and seek after and worship God. But the buying and selling, it was squeezing out the opportunity for people to do that in the holy place. Zio, I haven't got my little book, I meant to bring my little book, our life study book, Zio. The title of that means passion, to boil with heat and to be hot. And Jesus was passionate about his relationship within the Trinity. The disciples remembered when they saw him driving out the moneylenders from the temple with a whip. This reference came to their mind from Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house consumes me. How zealous, I wonder, are we? They could see how zealous Jesus was about God and about the place where he met with his people. How much do we get fired up every morning? about what God has in store for us, what he wants to share with us, what he wants to teach us. Interesting that you, again, should be referring to what happened in the pandemic. I don't know if 
like me, you struggled a bit in your faith during the pandemic. I found myself becoming uh, lukewarm, I suppose, and a bit apathetic. I wasn't despairing and I wasn't doubting, but there was a, um, yeah, a cooling. And I do think, as you said, that being separated from each other was made it much harder and that living in Christian community online is not real living in Christian community. But look at Paul. He was in prison for five years and a number of those years under house arrest. It didn't stop him. It didn't flatten his seal. I'm really challenged by him and others that I've known that have experienced time of similar separation and difficulty and not let their fire go cold. Think of Corrie Ten Boom um, and the holy man, as he called that Chinese guy who was in prison constantly. Constantly. It didn't let him. He learned how to massage people so that he could get close to them and tell them about Jesus. How do we stay hot? Perhaps it's a discipline. Spending time with God daily in prayer, reading the Bible, asking him to fill us afresh with his spirit so that our love doesn't fail. Verse 8 of Corinthians 13. And when we can, meet with God's people. They're simple daily disciplines that stoke the fire of our faith and develop zeal. Next verse, we are in... Um, be joyful in hope. So we're down, we're getting there, we're getting there. <laughs> Romans uh, 12, verse 12. Okay, be joyful in hope. And then in um, Corinthians, love always hopes. Which verse is that? Uh, yeah, verse 7, the middle bit of verse 7. Okay, so this is what um, Jesus says in John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you were saying it earlier, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. And this is the bit. I've told you this so that my joy may be complete in you and that your joy may be made complete. I saw this written by a lovely lady who was married to a missionary. Um, I can't remember which country they were in. Anyway, he died recently and she wrote these lovely sentences. Hope opens doors when despair closes them. Hope discovers what can be done instead of grumbling about what cannot. Hope, I like this one particularly, hope cherishes no illusions, but it doesn't yield to cynicism. Hope pushes ahead when it would be easy to quit. Hope looks for the good in people instead of focusing on the worst. And hope lights a candle instead of cursing the darkness. We can be joyful in hope because as followers of Jesus, we know that this broken dysfunctional, imperfect life that we're leading now is not what we're ultimately designed for. We have an eternal hope of an everlasting future and we need to live in the reality of that. Be joyful in hope. This is what Paul says earlier in Romans actually, uh, Romans 5 verse 5. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts 
by the Holy Spirit who he has given us. The Holy Spirit is the deposit of what's to come. Next bit of verse 12. Be faithful in prayer. And then I'm matching it up with the bit in Corinthians that says, Love always perseveres. That's verse 7. Jesus knew where to go to top up so that he could keep going. In Luke 6 it says, He often withdrew to lonely places to pray. And then Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 how we should do it. When you pray, go to your room, close the door, and pray to your father. It couldn't be much clearer, really. When I was preparing this talk, I listened to one given by a guy called David Pawson. Um, I really recommend his stuff. He's gone to heaven now, but you can find all his talks online, and they're wonderful. And he gave a talk on Romans 12, 9 to 30, and read it, and then he said, okay, that's it then. Don't really need to say anymore, go and do it. And I thought, should I try that? But I thought I might not get away with that. Again, prayer is not easy. My prayer life is really up and down. It's sketchy and unreliable. And God wants more from us But he wants more from us because he knows that we need that close, intimate relationship with us because it sustains us day by day. I love what Alan said on Wednesday. Um, He said, I want the Lord to be the first thing I think about every morning and the last thing I think about every night. And I think that's a really good start. The next part of... Um, verse, where are we? 12, it's be patient in affliction. Verse 12, isn't it? Okay, so, this is really hard. Paul tells us that when we're really tested, we need to be patient. When things are going badly, we need to be patient. When we don't feel well, we need to be patient. When everything around you seems to be falling apart, we need to be patient. And Jesus was constantly patient with his disciples when they did stupid things and asked ridiculous questions. There's one that I haven't seen before in John 13, where Philip says, well, just show us the Father and that'll be okay. Like that. Jesus patiently tells him again, don't you see yet? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Even when they had seen Jesus walking on water, stilling storms, bringing dead people back to life, still, still, they didn't understand. And he patiently explained again and again. And as Christy prayed earlier, even when, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating drops of blood just before his arrest. He was still patient in prayer. His disciples snoozed around him and he still wrestled in prayer because he needed his father's strength for what was to come. How about us? Can we stay patient when things are really tough? Again, it's really hard. Rob will be able to tell you how (laughs) I struggle with this one. But I think the key to this is in the previous verse, actually, 
Only when we keep faithful in prayer, asking God to help us, then does our patience develop. And for patience to develop, he has to, it has to be tested. So if you pray for more patience, get ready for the testing, because it will come. And I definitely need to do more of that. Okay, we're on the last verse. So, the last one says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Verse 13. And then in Corinthians, Love is kind, it does not envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud. Jesus pointed out that when we have love for one another, then people will know that we are his disciples. If we're really devoted in brotherly love, we're going to really care about what happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Acts 2, when the new church was in its infancy, we read this really, really challenging verse. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone who had needs. That's not the behaviour of an envious, boasting, proud people. I think they were really onto something. It seems that they really, really cared about each other. We all would probably like to think that we do give to God's people in one way or another, but I can't think of the last time I sold something in order to give to a brother or sister in need. It really cranks up the pressure. However, I do remember some years back, Lawrence, who was an elder here a number of years ago, he sold his beloved Harley Davidson motorcycle in order for this place to be built for his brothers and sisters in Christ. That seems to me like love in action. Finally, this little phrase, practice hospitality. I like this one actually. This is referring to everyone, not just our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, in James 2, he tells us to be very careful that we don't show favouritism in our hospitality, just inviting the people that will give us it back. It's for everybody. And I've linked this to Corinthians, uh, in the one in Corinthians 13, where it says, love always protects, in verse 7. Jesus loved to sit and eat and talk with people. The Bible tells us that he ate with sinners and tax collectors, that he warmly received and welcomed children, and that he even cooked a fish barbecue for his disciples when he was resurrected. Remember, they'd all abandoned him and betrayed him, and his response was to cook a meal for them. I wonder how many of us would do that for neighbours that we've fallen out with. It's challenging, isn't it? Sometimes hospitality may mean taking people into your home and protecting them. I was talking to a friend yesterday, the day that I was involved with, and she was telling me she's in the process of rearranging her house to potentially receive a mum, a granny and a child from the Ukraine. But it might not mean that for us. It could mean inviting your neighbour for a coffee or going out for a coffee. We've got a brother in New Zealand called Morris and if you look at his Facebook feed, it's constantly Morris going out for coffee all the time. <laughs> and we tease him a lot about it. Morris, do you do anything else than go for coffee? But what we know actually 
is that he's doing it in order to get alongside somebody and to support somebody. Bless you, Morris, if you're listening to this. <laughs> I think it's a heart attitude, one that is willing to embrace strangers and to be welcoming to those that we don't know and those that don't know Jesus. I still regret a time, I don't know if this is fanciful, but Rob and I were driving back from church in the pouring rain and plodding along our road with great big backpacks. There were some um, hikers and uh, they looked really bedraggled and wet. And a thought went into my head, you should invite them for lunch. And I didn't do it. And I went back straight away because I thought when we got into the house, okay, well, I'll drive back and see. And they just disappeared. I mean, they could have gone on another footpath, I suppose. But I still wonder if I missed out on entertaining angels. So, we covered all the verses, and I've tried to link them together somewhat tenuously in my double cloth. But why? Why do we need to do all of this? And I think we have to go back to the beginning of chapter 12 that Paul covered, where put the other Paul <laughs> says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices. So you could say, in view of God's mercy, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, because of that, we should love sincerely and hate what's evil. In view of God's mercy, we should be devoted to each other. In view of God's mercy, never lacking zeal, but keeping alive in our faith and serving God. In view of God's mercy, being joyful in hope. In view of God's mercy, being patient when we're up against it. In view of God's mercy, keep praying, even when we don't see anything happening. In view of God's mercy, share what we have with God's people. In view of God's mercy, have an open heart to respond to those who we don't know and who don't know Jesus. And because of his mercy, because of the great love he has for us, he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us to do all these things. Thank you. That's me.